walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you today for your glorious mercy and grace that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this time of worship that we have to come together as your people. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has promised where two or three are gathered that he will be in the midst with us. So we ask, Lord, today that as you are promised in the midst of us, that you will be our teacher, that you will be our guide, our director, that you will move our hearts and our mouths and our minds in the directions that you would have them to go, to know and to understand the things that you would have us to understand, to preach the things you would have us to preach, to sing the things you would have us to sing, as we have already seen the Spirit uh, move and work in the uh, song service and how he moved in the the verses of Scripture that even coincide with the things that we'll be talking about here in these verses as you direct in God. We know that the Spirit has wrote all these things in God's Word. He's the author. And that by that Spirit we now come to understand and learn, for they are from Him. And Lord, we just ask that you be with us now, that we might be uh, pleasing in this worship, that it might be in spirit and in truth. Father, you are glorious in your salvation. Christ Jesus, uh, victorious and successful in the work of redemption as our substitute, Lord. We thank you so much for the salvation that we have in and through them and the forgiveness that we have of our sins, the reconciliation to a holy God and Father, we just thank you so much that you have granted unto us life and life more abundant through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we just pray now that you would help us in this time. Help me to preach these words, and I pray that you'd help us to understand it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Looking today at Galatians 5, 25 and 26 and verse 1 of chapter 6, as I've mentioned here before, brethren, it's often uh, it's often uh, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, unfortunate, I guess is the best word I can think, but maybe not the correct word. Uh, it's unfortunate that we have these uh, chapter verse breaks in the scriptures. Uh, the translators or whoever it was that originally started putting chapter and verse breaks in and everything, I think they got it wrong here in uh, in these passages because there really isn't a break between verse 26 and verse 1. And as I've mentioned to you on many occasions, these are letters that are written to churches. And these letters have subjects, subject matters. Paul's writing, remember, to the Galatian church because the Galatian church has fallen suddenly into some error because of some Judaizers, Judaizers, some legalists 
that has come down from Jerusalem or from somewhere else, but originally it started in Jerusalem. They've come and they have incited this uh, way of thinking, this train of thought, this this uh, doctrinal misunderstanding to these Galatians who had been taught the gospel by Paul and have come in and subverted and undermined the teaching that Paul had brought to them, which, by the way, came directly from Jesus Christ, has come in and they have subverted the gospel by adding to it law-keeping. Instead of salvation and perseverance by grace alone, they have come in and they have said, we need to keep the law in order to be saved and to stay saved. If you do not keep the law... You cannot be saved and you lose that salvation that you've already had. You, you cannot keep a right fellowship. God cannot fellowship with you. God cannot have relationship with you if you continue in uh, breaking the law. And so you've got to pick up your law keeping. you got to get better at that. Now, I'm, of course, paraphrasing what Paul said, but I think that if you go back and Read again chapters 1, 2, and 3 especially. You'll see Paul is dealing with these matters. This is what is coming in. Take that back to Acts chapter, uh, what was it, 13 or 15, uh, where he went to Jerusalem. Him and Barnabas went and discussed this with the, with the council of Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem, I should say. So we have this letter that Paul is writing about this, this trespass, this sin, <laughs> that has come into this Galatian church, or these Galatian churches, as we see in chapter 1, it's churches, plural, there was multiple churches within the region of Galatia. Paul is writing this letter to correct them, to remind them of the gospel, to correct them of the error, to warn them of the error that they are holding to. Now he's doing this in love. He loves these Galatian people. Remember, he talked about that in chapter 1. That he loved them, and they had a love for him. Remember, he said that, you know, that he would have done anything for them, they would have done anything for him. So they had this love together for each other. So in love, Paul is writing this letter, and by the way, more importantly, I, I should say, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to the Galatian church in love, correcting them, bringing them back into right thinking, bringing them back from law into grace. If you remember, Paul said that anybody who desires to be under the law, anybody who believes that their righteousness can come from the law, has fallen from grace. And if you remember when we was talking about that, we're not talking about lose your salvation. To fall from grace, as Paul was talking to the Galatians about, is to fall from believing that salvation is by grace and looking to salvation by your own self-righteous merits, by your own works, by your law-keeping. And so Paul says, if you think that you can make a righteousness or an acceptance before God by the law, then you have fallen from the faith that looks to grace alone and you're looking to another gospel. You're looking at another uh, another Jesus, another way of salvation, which is no way of salvation, which is no gospel, which is not Jesus of the Bible. 
And so Paul is writing this letter for them for this purpose. And so when we come to places like this and we have these breaks, especially at this point, we see Paul in chapter 5, he's gone through here, and we just talked about it last week, where he's talking about this struggle that's within the, the child of grace, that the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, where we cannot do the things that we would. There's this battle here. So what's he telling them? What do we rely on? What do we look to? What is it that we are to do that we should walk in the spirit, as our verse says here in 25? To live in the spirit is also to walk in the spirit. What is walking in the spirit that we've seen in all these chapters that we've seen? We've seen this word. We've seen this phrase used in different ways. What is walking in the Spirit? It's walking by faith. It's looking at Jesus as our righteousness. It's looking to Christ as our salvation. It's looking to the substitute's obedience as our law keeper. He kept the law for me. My law keeping doesn't do anything for me and God. You understand that? I hope everyone's beginning to get that through all the courses that that we've been looking at here uh, of passages of Scripture, is that anything you do of law-keeping is not what makes you accepted before God, and it is not what keeps you in relation and fellowship with God. Everything that does that was Jesus Christ. He is the one who kept the law in your place. Therefore, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your law-keeping activity. He looks at Christ that did it for you. That's the activity that God is looking at. Whenever God is looking in fellowship with his people, he is not looking at how well we are reciprocating that fellowship and relationship. He is looking at his everlasting love for us that he set upon us before the foundation of the world, before the boys had done anything good or bad, that the purpose of election might stand. He said that the elder will will serve the younger, that he loved Jacob, and that he hated Esau. God hates the work of the flesh. God hates the man of the flesh. God has no fellowship with the man of the flesh, and that is who we are in Adam. But the child of grace, that which is born from above, that lives and resides within this fleshly vessel, that is what God loves from everlasting. And that is who God looks at from everlasting. And Jesus Christ, who is our life, our eternal life, He is the one that we were united to before the foundation of the world. He is eternal life. He has given unto us His life. And His life is perfect. His life is spotless. His life is sinless. That's what resides in us. That inner man cannot sin. That seed that remains in us cannot sin. Paul said it, In my inner man I serve the law of God. Why? Because that inner man that is in me is nothing more than the life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfect. He has given to me that same eternal life that is perfect and holy and righteous. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that that new creation that is in us is created in holiness and true righteousness. So that's what's in us. And Paul is saying, listen, 
you guys are thinking that this outward flesh is producing things that is pleasing to God. I once thought that myself. I was the chief of doing it on my own. I was the chief of religious works. I was the chief of religious zeal. I was the chief of law keeping. There was none that even compared to me in keeping the law. But he said, what I thought was gain for me, I now count as dumb. Do you count your law keeping as dumb? Or do you fancy it? Do you think it's something to be boastful about? Now every one of us here knows we've all been religious in our own rights. We've all had our own religious zeals and think we've been something before God because of all of our religious work that we're doing. So I know everybody can relate to that. But let me let me ask, how many churches have you ever attended where it's all about the outward appearance? It's all about how much you perform. And everybody is examining each other. Looking to see who's doing what and who's not doing what. How everybody is always judging each other on spiritual fruits and trying to tell them you need to be doing more. Or look at me. I'm doing way more than anybody else. Or you, you ought to be doing more because you're not doing anything. Or not enough. As if we can control the fruit of the Spirit. Now we read last week in verse 22 that the works of God are called fruit, right? It's fruit. It's not something that we manufacture. It's not fleshly works. It's fruit of who? The Spirit. It's His fruit. It's produced by His life. We talked about the tree and the fruit last week, right? It's it's the Spirit's fruit. It comes from the Spirit's life. Therefore, the flesh cannot manifest the spiritual things because the flesh is just flesh and cannot please God. Therefore, the fruits of the Spirit are spiritually worked. They are things that are brought up and brought to manifest by the Spirit Himself. So to tell somebody, you need to get after that and start doing that, you need to be more loving. You need to be more meekful. Meekness. You need to be more meek. That's the word I'm looking for. You need to be more long-suffering, more gentle. You need to have more faith. Okay, well, let me just wind it up here. Okay? Let me just get it out of my pocket. Brethren, it's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit doesn't produce it, we can't. And if the Spirit produces it, guess what? That Spirit is going to overcome the flesh and manifest it. Right? It's going to overcome the flesh. And manifests itself in our attitude, in our in our mind, and how we desire. Paul said, "In my mind, where is it that he served the law of God? In his mind, in his heart. He served the law of God in his mind and in his heart. 
Where did he serve the law of sin? In his flesh. There's the split. There's the two men. There's Adam 1, Adam 2. There's Mike Smith and the Spirit of God. Right there. Mike Smith can produce nothing. The Spirit of God is the only thing that can produce anything. So Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, that's what's in us. If we live in the Spirit, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's two opposite things, right? I've been crucified. What happens when you get crucified? You die. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, it's not I that lives, but Christ. And Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the, what? By the good deeds that I do? By the works that I accomplish? By the law that I keep? By the religious efforts that I make? No, what does he say? And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by the faith of the Son of God. How do we live by the faith of the Son of God? How do I live before God that is pleasing and righteous and acceptable? We talked about Romans chapter 1 last week. How do I present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him? How do we do it? We do it through His life. How do I present myself to God, holy and acceptable? Through Jesus Christ. He is my representative. He is my... Intermediate. He is the one who is interceding for me. He is that living sacrifice that ever lives to intercede for us. How do I present myself to God? Through Him. How do I live before God that's acceptable? Through Jesus Christ. Does that mean Jesus Christ is in me making my flesh do all these things? Well, He's going to be in me and cause me to love, and I'm going to love you, and it's going to show... He's going to be inside of me, and he's going to cause me to be meek in some in some instances. And so whenever I'm meek, it's going to be good for you. I'm not going to jump all over you and, and, and harm you. Long-suffering, I'm going to be patient. But brethren, those are the works of the Spirit, and those things cannot be worked upon. It cannot be built up. It cannot be fueled. It cannot be manufactured at any point that we want to just bring it out. It only comes as He gives it to us. And so many people teach that these are conditions that we must keep. Therefore, they must be things that by our will we can pull out of our hat anytime we want. And that's not the case. The Bible says that Jesus is the one who gives the measure of faith. Do you think that you can give yourself more faith than what Jesus is measuring out? What if he, in his providence, in his sovereign purpose, determines today, Sunday, that you guys, everyone in here that has faith in Christ Jesus, only has 10% faith today? Do you think you're going to be able to build it up by reading your Bible more? By praying more? Now, I'm not saying quit reading your Bible and praying. Those are things that the Bible admonishes us and tells us that we ought to do. Matter of fact, 
serving the law of God in our mind and having those new desires that's in our heart, walking in His statutes, that God has put that new heart in and is causing, He's causing us to walk in those statutes, is going to want to read God's Word. He's going to want to pray to the Lord. He's going to want to fellowship with God's people. He's going to want to be around those things, you know, serve God's people. But brethren, those are not things that we can build on. I often hear, especially among the Reformed people, that we can appropriate the means of grace. If we just appropriate the means of grace, then we are going to grow in faith. And so, brethren, we cannot grow in something that we do not have control over. We cannot grow in the fruit of the Spirit whenever it is the Spirit's fruit. It comes from His life. And so it says here, if we live in the Spirit, that's a statement of fact. It isn't saying, if you by your efforts are living in the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. He's not saying that. He says, if we live in the Spirit, that's a statement of fact. If we are of those who have been born from above, living in the Spirit, which living in the Spirit is not living by the outward works, but by living in the internal works of Christ Jesus in us. If we live in the Spirit, how do we how do we live? To me, is uh, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives with me in love, and I'll live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. I live by his faith. How do I live? By inwardly looking unto Jesus as my righteousness, as my obedience, as my acceptance, as my perseverance. He is the one preserving me until the end. He is my Abba Father. He is my substitute. He is my surety. He is my go-between. There's only one uh, mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. If there is a fellowship, if there is a relationship with God, it is only through Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean I'm getting to God, and so I have to ask Jesus if I can come to Him, and then I get to come to Him. No, 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 that's not how it works. I go to Christ, and Christ goes to God on my behalf. God comes to me as the elect child of grace. God comes to me through the man Jesus Christ. If there is any relationship, any fellowship, anything, it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, this was typified in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. And whenever God's glory came down inside of that tabernacle and dwelt, who could go inside that thing? Nobody. When God's glory came down, whenever those offerings was made... Nobody could go down, go in there except one person. And that was the great high priest. And that was even after he had been cleansed, which that cleansing didn't actually cleanse him of sin, but it was typified. Christ, who is perfect and holy and righteous, our great high priest, was the only one who can enter in to the court of heaven before the throne of God in the offering place of sacrifice, and he offered himself on our behalf. He's the only one that can get in there, brethren. That was typified in the Old Testament. And now that veil has went down through his flesh. 
Through Christ's flesh, the veil has been torn in two, and we can enter in into direct relationship with God, but it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have relationship with God. So if we live in the Spirit, it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now this is why it's unfortunate that this chapter break is here. It's because Paul is gearing us up because what has been talked about this whole entire time, what's he doing? Again, he's writing a letter of correction to people who have come under a sudden attack of doctrine. And even though they at first began to believe the truth, they are being swayed away from that truth by someone who's coming in and subverting the gospel. And so what's the trespass? We're fixing to talk about if a man be overtaken in a fault, what's being talked about here? What's the fault that this whole letter has been about? Is looking at self-righteousness. Looking to yourself. Looking at your own ability. Looking at outward works for acceptance and, and keeping with God. That's what the fault is. That is the context of this letter. And so Paul isn't just going from talking to them about this, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, now I'm just going to talk about church in general and how we ought to treat one another. No, the treating one another that we're fixing to read in verse 1 has all implications that goes back to chapters 1 through 5. Paul is dealing with the fault of being overtaken by legalism when the gospel is grace. So he says here, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, looking unto Jesus, if we live by that life that's in us, by the fruit of the Spirit, if we live that way, by the faith of Jesus Christ, then let us walk the same way. Let us walk in faith, trusting what Christ is doing. Trusting what Christ has done. Did Christ save me? I trust that he did. Was Christ's righteousness good enough? I trust that it is. God raised him from the dead. Was my justification secure? God's word says it was. And he raised Christ from the dead for my justification. Is my obedience full and fulfilled, perfect? He said it was for me. He lived, he lived that perfect life, and he is the end of law to those who believe. Christ is the end of the law to us who believe. What does that mean? To all those whom God has given faith to, they were ones that Christ obeyed for. Therefore, they are not under law, they're under grace. The law has been fulfilled for them. They did everything the law required. All the just requirements of the law, they met in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there's nothing else to keep. They kept it all. Because Christ did. <clears throat> so he says in verse 26, Let us not be desirous of vain glory. If we live by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, that means we're walking in faith, looking to Christ for our righteousness, before God, then 
That's just the opposite of what he says in verse 6, walking in vainglory. If we walk in faith, we're not going to walk in self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the same as vainglory. What is the glory of God? Is it not his righteousness? What is the glory of God? Is it not Christ himself? And if Christ is the glory of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then who are we to think that we could perform any glory before God? It's going to be vain glory. Everybody know what the word vain means? It means worthless. It means it, it, it's it just, if you do something in vain, it means you're doing it for no reason. If we try to live a law-keeping perfect life for acceptance and keeping before God, we're doing it for no reason because God is not going to even look at that. For the child of grace, we he looks for Christ alone. He's not going to look at that. So he says here, let us not be desirous of vainglory. Let's not look to our own selves. Let's not look to our law keeping. And listen, let's not provoke each other to do that. That's what I was saying a while ago. In religious gatherings that we've all been attending before, we the Lord brought us out of those churches and brought us into truth. What has happened in those churches? Everyone's looking at each other. You need to be doing that. Oh, you need to be doing that. Well, they ain't doing this. They're provoking one another of law-keeping. We ought to be provoking one another unto love, the Bible says. We ought to provoke one another unto love among the brethren, by the way, which is a spiritual fruit. We ought to be provoking one another to faith in Christ Jesus which, by the way, is also a product of the Spirit of God, a fruit of the Spirit, right? Those are the things that come out of the child of grace, not legalism, not pointing to the flesh and what it needs to get after and do, but pointing to the inward man and exhorting the inward man to continue in faith in Christ Jesus. And it says... Do not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. How often have we done that? What does that mean, envying one another? Well, I tell you what, I've been to a lot of Bible conferences. I've been to a lot of churches where uh, there's a preacher that has stood up there and preached, and I thought to myself, well, I tell you what, I wish I could preach like that. Or I've seen some, some brother or some sister who... Man, they are just very on fire for the Lord, and they're just out there serving away and doing all this stuff. And I think to myself, man, I wish I was like that. I'm envious of what the what the Spirit is doing in them, and not content in what the Spirit is doing in me. That's kind of a hard. That's it's a hard thing for me to take, right? It's a hard thing. Are we content in what the Spirit is doing in us? Are we content in the road that God is taking us down in His eternal purpose, that He has set out that path? The Bible says that He has set our habitation. He has confined us to our habitation. He is controlling every event that we are going to encounter. He is working everything after the counsel of His own will. 
He is working all things for my good and for His glory. And in doing so, as He takes us down this road in the ups and the downs and the curves and the twists and the turns, the hardships, the joys, the sorrows, all the things that God takes us through, until the end, are we content with the path that He's chosen for us? Or are we envious of others? Are we envious that others, God is taking down a different road. God is taking them down a different way. Well, brethren, I think if you look at somebody and you think, man, they're always joyous, they're always on the upside, everything's always good for them, just wait a little while. Just wait a little while. You're going to see they're going to experience the same things you do. There's going to be some low points. There's going to be some times of failings. There's going to be times of afflictions. There's going to be times that they're going to experience. Because, listen, Solomon said it best, there's nothing new under the sun. We're all experiencing the same things, just at different times, different ways, as the Lord takes us through. So let's not, let's not in vainglory look to ourselves. Let's not envy one another. Let's not provoke each other to try to keep their, keep the law and to, and to, and to do the things that would make a righteousness for ourselves. But look what he says now in verse six. I want us to pay close attention because verse 25 and verse 26 sets up this first verse. And that's why I believe this should have just not even been a, a page break, chapter break. Where the spiritual life shows itself in spiritual actions that we, that, that God per, performs in us. Like, like I said, love and meekness, compassion, those things. There are two points, I think, that the Holy Spirit uh, makes in our text today that will kill the vainglory that Paul is talking about in verse 26. Two things that I think we'll find here. Look what it says. It says, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be uh, be uh, tempted. Now, the first thing that I would like to point out here is that Paul appeals to them as brethren. In light of all this that's been going on in Galatia, and I would say that what they were believing is not the gospel. They weren't believing the gospel. They had believed the gospel. But their minds were being, or their, their thoughts were being uh, uh, subverted by something else. Paul did not cease to call them brethren. He has held that through the whole entire letter. He calls them brethren. This is only found, this word is only used in reference to God's people. The outside is not called brethren. The goats are not called brethren. The reprobate is not brethren. The Bible is not written to anyone except the brethren. From cover to cover, and I know we've been told that the Bible is for everybody, and the Gideons, they go around spreading out the Bible all over the place and hope that somebody would pick it up and find it and change their mind and follow after Jesus. I'm not against 
handing out Bibles by any stretch of the means. But what I'm saying is this, is that this book is not written for the reprobate. The reprobate is never going to get what this Bible says. Matter of fact, the child of grace, until he is converted of God and given understanding, is not going to even understand this. Until he is made spiritual and he is brought forth and given knowledge by God, he is not going to be able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. We have to be born from above and made spiritual to know spiritual things. And then even at that, as spiritual things, we have to have a teacher. And the Holy Spirit is that teacher. And that teacher teaches us in his purpose and in his time. And whenever he reveals it, then it will be revealed. Unless he's revealed it, it will not be revealed. We might have a carnal knowledge of it, but we don't have a spiritual understanding and wisdom in it. Okay? So Paul says, brethren, what about these brethren? What about these people that aren't believing the gospel? That ain't the gospel. Well, they can't be brothers. Well, I think that whenever they're confronted and corrected and reproved and by Scripture and in loving kindness and meekness, if they continue in that unbelief, then yeah, there comes a time where we might have to quit calling them brethren. There may come a time whenever the division is coming in the church where we might have to put them out of the church because of their difference of doctrine. But brethren, it shouldn't be like we find so often on Facebook, you believe different than me? Unliked. Oh, you don't agree with me? Or my theologians? Blackball that guy. Tell everybody not to listen to him. Wait a minute, you're saying something? I don't never heard that. I don't quite understand it, but it's not what I find in the creeds and the confessions. That guy's a heretic. Better not listen to him. We're so quick to cut people off. We're so quick to call people heretics. We're so quick to say, you're not a brother in Christ. But here, these people have completely subverted the gospel by believing in law and not in grace. That Paul had to write a letter to them and even called them, oh foolish Galatians. Who have bewitched? They had been, not only were they foolish, but they had been bewitched. He had to correct, he had to send correction to them. And I am sure that whenever he sent this letter, they didn't just read this letter and say, oops, messed up, I better change my course and start again. Now some of them may, the Lord may have given them repentance of that, and they turned from that. But brethren, I'm sure that there was, and, and I know that, and I, I think I can back that up by scripture, because we are in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. The reason why Paul give this admonition in 1 and 2 is because he is writing this letter and this letter will be read to the church and then there's going to be time after that. There's going to be discussion after that, right? Remember, these are letters that was written to a church to be read in the churches. The pastors got up and read this letter. This was from the Apostle Paul. He has sent us a letter, brethren. Let us read this thing and see what he has to say to us. And then he starts reading this and it isn't long into the letter that they find that Paul is coming with a scorching, 
scorching condemnation of their veerance from the gospel. But also, whenever the pastor got done reading this, at the very end, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's the end of the letter, brethren. What should we do about this? Let's talk about this. What is Paul saying? How do we need to handle this? Remember, there was discussion, there was time after this, and listen, brethren, moving forward into other churches who will always reciprocate the thing, there's nothing new under the sun, that are going to, con- that are going to experience the same conditions as time goes on. We experience them in our church. We've experienced them in our church. We've had this exact conversation within our church with members before. And just like with the Galatians, we've had members who's come in whose minds were subverted by another gospel to believe in legalism, but praise the Lord that God granted them repentance and they came back and seen that that was in error and repented of those things and apologized for those things and and presented themselves to the church as, hey, I, I, I don't believe that anymore. We've experienced that here within our own church. I've seen other churches that have gone through the same thing. It's going to happen. So why does Paul write this? Brethren, because we're all in the same boat. We're all the people of God. (coughs) And we're going to experience these things. And we're all going to be susceptible to these things. And so he's playing upon our love for each other. Listen, we are brethren. We are children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We have a connection of life that nobody else has. We have eternal life. We have the life of Christ in us, and it binds us together. We are one body in Christ Jesus. Whenever we gather here today, we are one body. We're not little parts just kind of thrown in here. To, you know, I, you know, we like to watch war movies. If you've ever seen war movies, and especially some of the newer modern war movies and everything... You know, you see them out there on the battlefield. They're out there shooting and doing all the stuff that we do in war and everything. And then a lot of times the camera will pan back and show you the aftermath of the of the of the battle, and you just see bodies and parts and all everything all over, and people gathering them all up in piles and all that kind of stuff. Listen, this is not what this is. Whenever we talk about a body, we're talking about a living body. We are talking about a connected body. We are talking about a body that is whole, that is one, that is together. Each member giving part to the whole. We are brethren. We are a family. Paul says, brethren. Whenever we come to those who are erring in the faith, who are beginning to look away from Jesus as their only righteousness and begin to believe something in error in the gospel. Brethren, we are brethren. We should be loving them and concerned for them. But most of the time, we either want to cut them off or we want to be indifferent to say, well, they're on their own. We need to just let, let them be. Hopefully they'll come back. No. If we love each other... Listen, if my body part is having a problem, am I going to just ignore it? No, I'm going to give care to it. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to try to do anything that I can to make sure that it's fixed. But more importantly, and this is where some of us have a downfall, 
we go to the doctor. We go to the physician to get it fixed. But if we are a body, we need to go to our physician, Christ Jesus. If we are a body, we need to look to the head who makes the decisions. We need to go to the head that feels and understands the hurt of all the rest of the body. Remember, Christ said, you know, he was just like us and that he was tempted in all points and that he himself has felt what it means to be tempted in every way. Not that he could have been sinful in any way. Not that that temptation could have overcome him. It couldn't because he was perfect. He was impeccable. But he did experience that temptation. So he knows what comes at us. He knows the things that we have. And he can sympathize with that as our great high priest. And since the head has knowledge of the hurts, since the head has knowledge of the failures that can happen, the temptations that may come, the head has knowledge of that. The head feels that. The head knows that. And then the head makes decisions on what should be done, right? We as a body of Christ should be looking to Christ, who is our head, for whenever there is error, whenever there is something in the body that is not right, look for the answer to the head. But what often do we do? Oh, my finger hurts. Cut it off. And the head says, well, you idiot. We probably could have done something to save that. Brethren. We're brethren. Paul is appealing to our brotherly love, to the claims that an erring fellow Christian uh, should have our sympathy. We should sympathize with them because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. He is appealing to our uh, meekness and our forbearance which the Spirit of grace gives us. He is appealing to our connection to Christ in compassion and admonition uh, that the Lord has given us to love our brethren. And as we see here, bear one another's burdens. So I think the first point that the Spirit gives us in this passage to kill vain glory in verse 26 is to remember, to contemplate, to think, to consider that we're all brethren. We're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. I'm your brother. You're my sister. You're my brother. If we think of those terms, we're not going to be thinking of ourselves. The Bible tells us that we ought to think of others more highly than ourselves, right? Well, if we're a child of grace... And we're looking and one of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. One of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and goodness. Temperance, self-control. We're not going to be rash and jump to some conclusion right away and cut that brother off. Well, we see that in Facebook all the time. Now again, we can't produce this fruit on our own. The Spirit produces that fruit in us. So we must pray and ask, Lord, give us this fruit. Give us this stuff that we need to be what you want us to be to each other. 
If I, you know, if I'm going to be long suffering to to uh, uh, Brother Kevin here, it's going to take the grace of God to give me meekness and temperance and and things, because we're going to at some point eventually we're probably going to have odds with each other, and the flesh is always going to want to say, "I'm right, you're wrong." And if I'm right and you're wrong and you don't turn your mind and change and come my way, then I'm just not going to have nothing to do with you. That's what our flesh wants to do. Matter of fact, the Bible even told us there that the works of the flesh are what? One of the things that the works of the flesh is? Hatred. Variance. Wrath. Strife. Heresies, that's divisions. Envies. Hey, murders. Revelings. Those are the things that can happen in the flesh. So he says, brethren. Now, let's go on. If any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be con- uh, tempted. Now I'm going to talk about uh, 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 about that here in just a minute, but I want to go to my second point. One of the things that I believe the Spirit gives us here that combats the vain glory in verse 26 is that we are susceptible to the same thing as the brethren who is overtaken in a fault. We are susceptible to the same thing. We have the same qualities of outward nature as they do. We have the sinful nature of Adam and the propensity to fall in the same thing that they have fallen in. And I know that's true because it said, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Tempted to do what? To fall away. To do what? To be overtaken in a fault. Now this word overtaken in a fault, this isn't something that somebody contemplated on and you know, designed to, I'm going to do this. You know, we have sins that we know are sins. We know it's a sin against God, but we say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. And in the back of our mind, we think, I'm going to do it anyway. The Lord's forgiven me of that sin. I'll just confess that sin, but I won't do that. We do it. Now, I won't, I'm admitting I do that. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you've done that too. But this right here is something that is a sin that is an overwhelming sin. Something that is rushed in. This is a sin that has come in like a flood and out of just the sheer surprise of it all, the person has... Uh, uh, has indulged into this sin and has been overtaken by it. The Galatians were people who believed the gospel, but all of a sudden these religious men from Jerusalem who they thought, hey, this is the, this is the center of everything for us. This is where Christianity came out of here. This is where the church started, is right here. This is where the apostles, the most of the majority of the apostles still reside. This is the church that has sent out the apostles and the people, and they've seen other churches constituted together. 
This is the place, man. If anybody knows the answers, it's these guys. And there was men who came out from there, came down, and started preaching something contrary to the gospel. And it overwhelmed this, this church, these churches. That's exactly why Paul, whenever it happened in Antioch, him and Barnabas straightway went and said, Hey, we've got to get to Jerusalem and nip this in the bud. We've got to get this fixed. They cannot keep letting men come down. Subvertus, they need to deal with these men. They need to deal with this message. And they need to quit letting this take place. We need to have a... Everybody needs to be on the same page here. Jews and Gentiles. Quit acting like we're separate people. We're one in Christ Jesus. There is no Jew and Gentile anymore. Quit acting like Jews among Jews and Gentiles among Gentiles. Oh, by the way, Peter... You hypocrite, that's exactly what you did. And Paul had to call you out on it. See, we all fall back into those things, right? Paul did it. I mean, Peter did it. He fell back into that legalism just a little bit. And these Judaizers were doing that. If any man be overtaken in a fault, this is somebody who has been overwhelmed by some something that's come in. They've, they've been confused by it, indulged in it, realized, not completely maybe realizing it was sin, but it's been sin. Those, that's why he says, ye which are spiritual. They've been overtaken in a sin because they have been looking at and understanding in the carnal. Because those who are spiritual are, what does verse 25 say? Living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Those who are the spiritual ones are the ones who are looking to Christ in faith for righteousness. But the ones who are looking to their works, the law, that these men came down and subverted them with, does the Spirit lead you in that thinking? No, it's the carnal man that does. It's the carnal spirit. It's the carnal thoughts. The carnal mind. The carnal flesh. That's the one who sees this. And what do they do? They came down in a religious way. They came down in a way that was mixing grace and law together that sounded good to these brethren. And these brethren who loved the Lord, who loved the brethren of God, who loved the Word of God, was confused about what they were hearing. And therefore, when they heard this, it sounded religious. It sounded good. It sounded like it was some... Oh, they're coming and saying, we need to be serving the Lord. You need to be keeping this law so that you might show your love for Christ Jesus. Is that not what we hear in modern churches today? How do you show your love for Christ Jesus? By serving and obeying His commands. Well, what commands? We, we talked about it a few weeks ago. We did a whole sermon on what it meant to serve Christ and what does serving his, uh, obeying His commands mean. It doesn't mean obeying the law because we already know the Bible says that is impossible. What are the commands that He is telling us to obey? Believe God or uh, uh, love God, love our brethren, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the law that we are living under. That's the law, and by the way, I don't want people to confuse us and think that we are uh, neonomians who believe that uh, this is a new law. There was an old law that we had to live by. Now there's a new law. Brethren, while this may be a new testament in our experience, a new covenant in our experience, a new 
uh, a new law in our experience. Brethren, it's an old law. This law was in effect with Adam. This, this law and this covenant, this testament, was all the way back to Adam. It's new in our experience of it. But brethren, let, I know some people are probably hearing this and looking and thinking, you're confusing me. You're confusing me. You got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament, right? We have cut that up in our Bible. This was what happened before Christ. This is what happened after Christ. This is before the full revelation of the gospel. This is after the full revelation of the gospel. But brethren, is the is the efficacy, is the effectiveness, is the work of the gospel any different in the Old Testament than it is in the New? Was Abraham saved any, any different than we are? No. What saved Abraham? The work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. It wasn't Abraham's faith that saved him. It was Christ on the cross and his bloodshed that saved Abraham. That's That was Abraham's salvation. Isn't that our salvation? Did everyone in the Old Testament who was the elect child of grace, were, were they loved by Christ Jesus? Absolutely they was. The Bible said that we have been loved with an everlasting love. Well, where did that love come from? It came from an everlasting covenant. We also know it as the New Covenant. The New Covenant was preached in the Old Testament. So yes, the New Covenant was in the Old Testament. It has always been. It's new in our experience. It's new in the fact that the Old Covenant was given first to show forth not only our inability, but to also point us to Christ. But now the New Testament is the way that now the people of God see in clarity, full clarity, Jesus Christ and what he done. In the Old Testament, they knew Messiah was going to come and Messiah was going to be our righteousness. We are going to believe in Messiah that is to come. He is our Savior. That's what Abraham believed. That Messiah is our righteousness. But they didn't know all the details of what was going to happen. They didn't know everything fully. But brethren, they did know that righteousness came by the man Jesus Christ. They knew that righteousness was not of themselves. And so brethren, they who are spiritual were the ones who was looking unto Jesus the ones who were looking away and being subverted by these Judaizers were thinking in the carnal mind. So he said, ye which are spiritual, that isn't those of us who are more holy than anybody else. None of us are holy. If that was the case, Paul would have said, consider yourselves. You better consider yourselves, lest ye also be tempted. No, brethren, those who are spiritual were no different than anybody else. So that ought to cut us of any vain glory that we are anything before God in our flesh. Because we, just like these carnal believers who were believing and starting to be drawn away by another gospel, we too can also be in their same shoes. Matter of fact, the Bible says, uh, can't remember now off the top of my head where it's at, uh, I think it's in Corinthians somewhere, the Bible says that we ought to give heed 
how we stand, lest we fall. We need to pay attention to how we're standing. Are we standing by our own, you know, hey, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I've got myself to where I'm here. I'm spiritual because I put in the work. <clears throat> I often hear guys, and I've said it myself before, I'm just as guilty as anybody else in this. I've heard guys say, man, I've spent hours and hours studying this. I've studied this. I've studied this. I've studied this. I've studied this. Listen, it doesn't matter if you study this Bible for three weeks without stop and without sleep. Listen, you're not going to learn anything unless the Spirit gives you understanding of that thing. And your ability to read and to, and to study and to comprehend in the carnal mind and to even maybe memorize these. I've met men who can memorize, who have memorized the whole New Testament. I know of a story of one guy who has memorized the whole entire Bible. But just because you can put something to memory like that doesn't mean that God has given you the wisdom to understand it. And so being spiritual isn't anything that we do by putting in the effort, by putting in the hours, by putting in the long time of, of, of appropriating the means. To be spiritual is for God to have given us faith and to give us to look in that measure of faith to look to Christ and to look to Him alone. So these are the ones who have not been subverted by the false teaching of the Judaizers. These are the men who weren't swayed. So he's saying, listen, in any congregation, whenever something comes in and you see a brother who is overtaken in a fault, and listen, with internet today, people are out reading all kinds of stuff. Listen, there are websites out there you go to that are called Christian websites, and you start reading them. There are commentaries. There, there's more commentaries than this whole house can contain. People commentating on the Bible. Listen, we even have now people that we got Bibles that they got commentary down here, and I've had people say, "Well, I got to have a study Bible. I can't have a Bible without notes down to be able to tell me what it means." We're putting our trust in men to tell us what it means. Why do you want to go to someone secondhand when you got it firsthand right here and the only teacher that can teach you in you? Pray to him and ask him to teach you. Don't pray and ask John MacArthur to teach you or Matthew Henry to teach you or John Gill to teach you. No, there's nothing wrong with going and reading those guys and seeing what they have to say and their outlook on it. I often do that myself. This morning I even went and I took a look at what a couple guys said on some stuff that I was looking at and what my thoughts were about it. I thought, I'm kind of curious to see what this guy thinks about it. Hey, this guy actually agreed with what I thought about it. This guy didn't. So I thought, well, I wonder if that guy's right. Well, the more I read it, I thought, no, there's too much Bible that disagrees with that. So i got to forget this guy. But do I believe it because this guy did did and agreed with me? No, no. How do I believe it? Because the Word of God says it. And the Holy Spirit has taught me and said, hey, that's what this means. That's why we believe it. That's who's spiritual. The ones who the Lord is still teaching, still giving faith to, the ones who have not been subverted Bewitched. What does it say? Ye who are spiritual, restore. Not kick out, 
not unfriend, not cut off, not banish, not blackball, not put a scarlet letter on their chest. It says restore. They're first before there's any cutting off, before there is ever any discipline to be done within a local assembly. There must first be love, meekness, long-suffering, patience, temperance, in restoring the brethren. See, Paul, Paul could have, if he would have been in the flesh, say, uh, round up all those ones who are not believing what I told you guys and ship them out. But he didn't say that. You remember what he said to the, uh, uh, to the um, Corinthians? <clears throat> Whenever he was correcting them, he said, do you want me to come with the rod or do you want me to come with loving kindness and meekness? I mean, that was a rhetorical question. Of course, he was coming in loving kindness and meekness. He wasn't coming with a rod. He was coming in loving kindness. He was coming and saying, hey, brethren, we're brethren. You're, you're, you're moving away from God's word. You're moving away from what Christ is. You're moving away from the gospel. Hey, let's, let's look at this. What does God's word say? And that's how we are, brethren. Now, you say, well, that's good, uh, but I don't think he's talking to the church. That's individuals. So if that guy hasn't offended me, then I shouldn't even be a part of that. No, 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 brethren. Who is this written to? This is written to the church. It's written to the gathered assembly. It's not written to a mystical body, an invisible church. That doesn't exist. A church is a gathered assembly. You can't have a church, an ecclesia, which is a gathered assembly, without it being gathered. It's talking about the local, visible church. He's written to that, and he's saying, ye, that word ye, we've, I've taught you that here before, or I've uh, attempted to teach you that before. I pray the Holy Spirit has taught you this. But the word ye, if you remember, is not singular, it's plural. Now, the new translations of the Bible, whenever they translate it, they translate it you. But it's not you. Ye does not mean you. This is one of the reasons why the King James Bible is, is I think, very good. is because it maintains the plural and the singular in the Greek. We can understand those things because... A lot of other English doesn't talk like that. Matter of fact, whenever this was written in King James in 1611, this was even not common among their language, by the way. So don't think it's just Old English. It was old to them. It was a language that even they weren't speaking. The ye's and these and thou's, that, they weren't using that as common. But brethren, this was how the translators... Preserved because in English you could not convey the plural and the singular in some of the verbs uh, and some of the nouns and, and the things in, uh, uh, in, in Greek. You couldn't convey those things. And so they used words that preserved that. And ye is one of those words. Ye does not mean you specifically. Ye means ye. Remember I said it was a single collective. It's, it's speaking of a group of people. It's a singularity, but it's a plural within that singularity. It's talking to a group. Who's he talking to? Ye. Ye who are spiritual. 
He's talking to the Galatian church, and especially those who are spiritual within the Galatian church, ye who are spiritual. He's talking about all of you together as that group who are spiritual, restore such a one. What do we do today, though? Preacher, that guy's out of line. You better go talk to him. Is that what we do? Is that what we... Ain't that what we pay the preacher for? It's his job to go talk to all those sinners. Ain't that what we think a lot of times? I don't get paid here, so it's not my job. Hey, he said, ye who are spiritual. The admonition, exhortation is to all of us together as a family. What happens whenever something happens in a family and somebody goes bad? The whole family gets involved. We call them now, what, what do they call it now? Uh, whenever you pull a family member in and talk to them, what do they call it? As a group? Not, not an inter- intercession, but a, a intervention. an intervention. Yeah, today we call them intervention. We're going to have an intervention. Okay? Well, that's what we have as a family, right? We call that loved one in and say, Hey, man, we got to talk to you about this. You who are spiritual. He says, Restore such a one. But how are we to restore? Look what he says. In the spirit of meekness. In the spirit of meekness. Ye that are spiritual need to do that in a spirit of meekness. If we are led by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. So we should be praying to God, Lord, give me the meekness to come before this brethren, and not in a haughty spirit, not in a self-righteous spirit, not in a condemning spirit. Let us love this brother. And let us, let us show him your word. And may you give him repentance to come away. The Bible says that, that we who are teachers, that, that whenever we come across somebody who doesn't agree with us, what does the Bible say? That we with meekness and long-suffering, uh, uh, that we should uh, instruct them in hopes that God would peradventure give them repentance into the acknowledging of the truth. Right? Now this word, in the spirit of meekness, this phrase, in the spirit of meekness, is is not saying, in a meek spirit. Again, we cannot perform a meek spirit. We are not a meek spirit in the flesh. We have to do it in the spirit of meekness. The Holy Spirit of God is meek. You remember one of the uh, one of the attributes of God as Spirit is that the Bible says that He will speak nothing of His own, but what will He do? He will speak of Christ, right? That's meekness. There is a meekness in the Spirit of God, in that He doesn't have vain glory. He looks to Christ. He speaks of Christ. 
which ought to be no surprise to any of us because the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible says, is the Spirit of Christ. It's His Spirit. He has sent His Spirit into us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He has sent His Spirit into us so that we might look unto Him and that we might know that it might testify with our spirits that we are His. But it also is given to us that He might teach us and give us the faith, which is the Spirit, fruit of, fruit of the Spirit, in Christ Jesus. So what does it say here? We come in the Spirit of meekness. When we come, we pray that the Spirit be our guide, our leader, our director. But it says, but when you do... Consider thyself. Now, do you notice what happened there? Paul went from the plural ye to the singular thyself. You've got ye, you and yours in this, which are plural. And you've got thee, thou, and thine, which are singular. Whenever you come across that in the King James Bible, always know, if it's ye, you, or your, it's talking of plural. If it's thee, thou, and thine, it's plural. I mean, excuse me, singular. He said, considering thyself. So he said, whenever you go as a group, ye who are spiritual, when you go as a group, restoring such a one in, in the spirit of meekness, when the spirit of meekness that we ought to before we even go to that brethren, before we even attempt to restore this brethren, we need to be on our face praying to God that He would give us the spirit of meekness to guide us. Help us now, Father, as we go to our brother in Christ who is erring in the faith, and may You direct our path, our, 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 our con control our spirit so that we are meek and humble and that we are long-suffering and patient, but help us be bold in your word, bold in the faith, but meek in spirit before them. Listen, the old saying goes, you're never going to catch anything. Uh, well, I've done lost the phrase now. It's easier to catch bees with honey. A kind word turns away wrath, as the Bible says. If you come all haughty and proud and arrogant and judgmental, what's going to happen? That person is immediately going to put up the front. So we ought to pray that the Lord would do this in meekness. But he said, whenever you go as a group together and you go to restore this brethren, consider yourself as you go. Because if you're considering yourself you know you're susceptible to the same thing. This could be you. They could be coming to you sometime. At some point, you might be the one under the correction of the church. So consider that when you go to them so that you might not come in a haughty spirit, but that you might be coming in a loving and meek and gentle spirit. See, if I know, hey... <laughs> You can always tell us, can't you? If somebody has done something, like say I've done something, say I've been guilty of something, let's see, um, 
Look, well, here, I'll just be honest with you. Everybody in the church knows this. Some of the new folks probably not know this. Whenever I was a teenager, I got caught, caught in a mall in Tulsa. I was shoplifting. I had, had my jacket on, and I went through this uh, uh, store that had uh, records and tape. Back there, we didn't have, uh, at that point, we didn't really have CDs. They were just kind of starting out and everything, and we definitely didn't have, you know, digital music like we have today. But we had, they had cassette tapes was the thing that we all had. And I was in this store, and I had my coat on, and uh, we were in there, and uh, these cassettes, they weren't any big, long plastic thing. They just was loose in a cellophane wrapper in this rack, and then you just let sitting in this rack. I was taking these things and looking at them, and then I was holding them in my hand, and I was going around and some of the other things. But as I was looking at all these other ones, I was slowly pushing it up into my sleeve and my jacket. Well, eventually I had about five or six in this coat jacket and about five or six in this coat jacket and even a few that I stuck around in the back of my pants. So I had stolen. I had shoplift. Well, I thought I was going to get away from it. I started out the store and as I was fixing to go outside, beep, security got me right there. They caught me on cameras doing it. Now, after all that was said and done, if I was sitting in a room and someone was accusing somebody of shoplifting, you think that I'm going to get up and start pointing a finger? You, sorry dog, I can't believe you shoplifting. No, there's going to be a little spirit of, of, of meekness there because I just went through that. I know what it feels like. Matter of fact, <laughs> you can ask my, my wife, there was a long time, even after, this happened way before we got married, but um, even after that, because I was banned. One of the things, they didn't arrest me. I was still a minor, so they didn't arrest me. But they banned me from the store, and I couldn't go back in that store. Well, several years later, after I got married and everything, we were in the mall, and that we went in that store. And as soon as I walked in that store, I knew. That they told me, you're not allowed in our store anymore. I knew I probably shouldn't even go in here, but that was a long time ago. They're not going to remember who I am. I walked in that store, and as soon as I stepped over the threshold into that store, I immediately started feeling humbled. Like, man, I am going to make sure that there's nothing on me showing. If I grab something, I want to make sure when I get up to the cashier, I'm going to make sure there's nothing in my pockets. Make sure I haven't held something or walking out. I will make sure that I'm not. Listen, it humbled me. Listen, whenever we come in love and loving kindness and meekness and gentleness, when we come in correction, that is going to have an effect on people that I know that whenever I do wrong, my brethren love me, they care for me, and listen, that might open up their, their uh, communication with us so that we might be able to go to God's Word and that we might be able to uh, talk and see what the Lord will do in all of that. So in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now we'll get to number two next week. I've already went over, but we want to uh, uh, pick that up next week. So anybody got any questions or comments about the <coughs> message today or anything that you'd like to add? Any corrections that you would like to do in loving kindness and meekness? I think it's uh, very important to 
say when somebody says something wrong about the fundamentals, or some, sometimes that's not the big deal, you know, and that reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians, is that correct? can no man lay than that is laid which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So yeah, it's going to be revealed in that day, whether or not that was the work of the Spirit, or whether it was the work of the flesh. It will be revealed. All right, anybody else got anything? Yeah. All right. Remember, we won't be here next week for those that's on the uh, live stream and listen to this after. Uh, we will not be uh, here this next week. Now, we'll go ahead and maybe try to live stream from uh, Delaware, Oklahoma. We'll be preaching over there next week. So uh, we'll try to live stream from there if I'm we're able to get that worked out. But uh, And they may also be live streaming. I know their church does a live stream as well. But uh, we'll try to live stream ours as well uh, from there. And so uh, there'll be two messages next week live streamed from us because they have a morning service. Then after that, they eat lunch, and then they have an afternoon service right after that. So we'll try to have a, a, a live stream on the second service as well. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, so no, no meeting here. But we will be, actually, I hope Brother Ed didn't think that it was this week after I told him that last week. He might have gotten mistaken and thought it was this week, but it's next week. If he don't show up next week, I need to call him. But anyway, be praying for that. Be praying for travels. Uh, my family is going to be, oh, I'll probably stop the live stream. Uh, be 